0: Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Kahana mobile app. Okay, go ahead and uh, make your way back to your seat, if you would. Uh, good morning. Good morning to all of you. Man, I am so glad that you made it in today. It's kind of harrowing out there. Welcome to you. Welcome also to our brothers and sisters at our Whitehall campus. We're coming uh, live stream video to you guys today. My, my motto is, technology is great when it works. And uh, hopefully it's working uh let's let's do this. If you haven't taken the study guide out of your worship folder yet, go ahead and do that and that way you can track with me this morning and uh, let me offer a prayer for us before we look into the Word of God. Our Father, we're grateful to have a place where we can come on the weekend and gather with brothers and sisters, people whom we love, where we can uh, lift up our praises in musical worship we can pray with one another, and hug one another, and also be instructed in the Word of God. And I pray that you would do that uh, through your holy word this morning. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, during Advent season here at New Life, we've been looking deeper into the Christmas story, see how the various characters in the story responded uh, when they first heard the news of the arrival of the Messiah, of Jesus, on our planet. You might recall a few weeks ago, we first looked at Joseph, right? Saw how he reacted. That young husband-to-be who got blindsided by the news that his fiancé was pregnant. He knew he wasn't the father. But we saw that despite feeling betrayed and probably humiliated, And despite his Facebook page blowing up with snide comments from others, uh, when the word of the Lord came to Joseph, he simply obeyed. He did what God told him to do. Without hesitating, without questioning, at God's command, he went ahead with his plan to take Mary as his wife. And yet he had no union with her until that baby was born. And then he named the newborn child Jesus which means Jehovah saves, and that also had been commanded by the Lord through his angel. So Joseph, we noted, got Christmas right. He got it right by listening to the voice of God and by doing what God had told him to do. His unquestioning obedience in the face of circumstances that must have been perplexing and confusing, I think should be an inspiration to all of us, certainly is to me. And then last weekend we explored the response of some other characters in that first Christmas story, the lowly shepherds who also got Christmas right, that unlikely band of sheep watchers who were out in their fields keeping watch over their flocks by night when, lo, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid or terrified, depending on which version you're reading. And we saw that when those fellows heard the angel's announcement of Messiah's birth, they they were blown away by it. And after making that trek over to Bethlehem to see the baby king for themselves, they excitedly went out and told others the good news. And Pastor Jay helped us see how that's also how we can get Christmas right, by doing what they did, joyfully sharing the news of Jesus with people who need to know. But I'm sure you're aware that not everybody in that Christmas story, that first Christmas story, was thrilled about the coming of Christ to the earth. And so while we look at this peaceful nativity scene here with its warm glow and proud parents and cute cuddly little infant baby and the shepherds and so forth, we hopefully also realize that there was a whole nother dimension to that first Christmas story. There was a a dark side to it. There was a sinister side. There was vicious and violent opposition to that very first Christmas and Jesus being born. Think about that for a moment. Who? Who opposed the birth of Messiah? Well, here's a version of the Christmas story that I'll bet very few of you have ever read in the Bible. Let me read it for you. Listen. It's from Revelation chapter 12. It reads like this. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. With seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads, and his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Chestnuts roasting on an open fire! I mean, this is disturbing, isn't it? This is kind of unsettling. It's it's unnerving. But I think we need to grasp this because while we might think that a little baby boy born to bring hope to the world might be a cause for rejoicing for everybody, it wasn't. It wasn't. Now, this vision is recorded in the book of Revelation, so right away we know it it was one of those apocalyptic visions that was given to the Apostle John. And through what he saw in in the sky and what he wrote down for us, we're given a peek at what was really going on when Jesus was about to be born. And so what do we see? John looked up into the sky and he saw the image of a woman appear in the heavens. A pregnant woman. Evidently, she was in the final stages of labor. And some of you know what that's like and what a pleasant experience that is. She was pushing hard. She was screaming out in pain as her contractions were coming closer and closer and closer together. She was about to deliver a baby. And then another image appears standing before the woman ready to receive the newborn. It was a very imposing and scary figure, a gigantic, multi-headed, horned, red dragon. And he stood there poised and ready to take the little child and devour him the moment he was born. Apparently this was the Christmas that almost wasn't. Now, I'm having a hard time envisioning that scene on a Hallmark Christmas card, aren't you? It's like just, <laughs> it, it doesn't, doesn't fit. It seems strange and kind of freakish and out of place, incongruent with having ourselves a merry little Christmas. So who was this dragon? Well, we're not left to wonder. In verse 9 it says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And so we discover that this is what we suspected. This is a glimpse behind the curtain into the cosmic clash of the ages. It's Satan, Lucifer, versus the Son of God who seems badly overmatched in this particular contest, doesn't he? A baby versus a dragon. And the woman there is not Mary, but Israel. Israel, about to deliver the long-awaited Messiah to be the hope of all mankind, but, but his very existence is being threatened by this leering serpent who over time has morphed into a ferocious bloodthirsty monster. And there he is, hovering over the scene, drooling with excitement and eagerness at the prospect of being able to crush that newborn infant right as he emerges into the world and to do it before he can grow up and fulfill his mission. You know, reading that, I just think that this Christmas season, we need to be reminded that we are engaged in a fierce spiritual war, a conflict that's been raging for millennia. It's a cosmic conflict that traces its history back to the birth of our Lord and Savior and yet back even before him to the Garden of Eden and even predates creation, actually. It's an unseen battle, isn't it? Being fought in a a, a spiritual dimension, a spiritual realm in which the great serpent dragon seeks to co-opt the throne the rule of God, usurp His authority, steal His glory, and spoil His plan for redeeming a people for Himself through His Son. Think about it. Everything about the promise of of Christmas enraged the proud heart of Satan. The ancient prophecies that predicted it, the angels who announced it, the shepherds who rejoiced in it, Mary and Joseph, who were in awe of their unique and special role in it and especially his heart was enraged against the God who had planned it all during the pregnancy of Mary the daughter of Israel Satan unseen by human eyes was busy preparing his assault on the little child and you know what he almost pulled it off he nearly succeeded And let me ask you this. Do you remember who Satan's human instrument was in his plan? Who his stooge was? None other than King Herod. King Herod, that local ruler of the Jews at that time. Herod was the pawn in Satan's hand whom he manipulated to try and sabotage that very first Christmas. You know, I I think that for us today... Herod serves as a prime example of how to get Christmas totally wrong, (laughs) because he got it very, very wrong, didn't he? Herod was nothing like Joseph, nothing like the shepherds in their rejoicing at the news of Jesus' birth, and nothing like those wise men who would come to worship Christ. We're going to look today at how this ruler, this Satan-inspired and very likely uh, Satan-possessed ruler responded when he heard about Jesus' birth. We're going to try to peer into his heart, see if we can discover what caused his reaction. But first, let me ask the historical question. Who was this guy? And I've got to admit, I'd never done much research on Herod until this sermon, and I found out some very interesting facts about King Herod. History knows him as Herod the Great. He was the first of many Herods, Herod is more of a title than, than a name. First of many Herods to rule in Israel, the Herods were part of a dynasty of regional kings who ruled over the Jews in Israel during the, the days of the Roman Empire. Herod the Great was born around 74 BC, and uh, he claimed to be Jewish. He wasn't Jewish, but he practiced the Jewish religion somewhat. His father was an Idumean, his mother was an Arab and yet he claimed Jewish blood, and that claim was often challenged. His dad appointed him as governor of Galilee at the ripe young age of 25. And a little later, he was given the title Tetrarch of Galilee by Mark Antony. Heard of him? One of the Roman generals who was vying for power after the assassination of Julius Caesar. And so Herod grew up in an environment where he rarely hobnobbed with people of power, with people of influence. Those were the circles that he traveled in. He knew Antony and Cleopatra personally. They were close friends. He knew the emperor. He had conversations with the emperor of that time. There came a point where he was ousted from his position in Galilee, but he was able to go to the Roman emperor whose name was Octavian. We know him as Caesar Augustus. And he went to him and he asked the emperor to restore his rule in Galilee and the emperor did that. The Roman Senate appointed him king of the Jews. That was his official title. And Herod returned to his post and he ruled in Israel for 37 years. During his time in power, he uh, really elevated the profile of Israel in the world and he, he impressed his superiors in Rome as well, mostly by launching a very ambitious Building program, building campaign in Israel. Herod had theaters built, amphitheaters, aqueducts, pools, markets, malls. No, no malls. (laughs) Um, Palaces. Masada. We had some people from our church this last summer visit Israel and they saw Masada. That was the construct of Herod the Great. But perhaps his claim to fame was the rebuilding of the famous temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. About 20 B.C., he financed that and arranged for that to happen. Maybe you've heard it called Herod's Temple. So very uh, extensive and ambitious building projects, but it came at a cost. To underwrite all of that, he laid a very heavy, heavy tax burden upon the people of Israel to pay for all of that and also to support his very luxurious lifestyle. And so as you can imagine, uh, he began to engender a lot of ill will among the locals there because of all that. Herod the Great married ten times. Count them. Ten times. He had at least 15 kids. As he grew older, he became more and more paranoid. He became more and more about protecting his power and his throne. And he was subject, history tells us, to fits of rage. He may have had a mental disorder as well. I mean, this is a guy who murdered his father-in-law, murdered several of his wives, and had three of his sons executed. Not a nice fella at that point in time. And all of that prompted the emperor at the time to make a very famous comment about Herod, that it was preferable to be Herod's pig over being his son. He treated his pigs better than his own offspring. Well, Herod finally succumbed to all of his many maladies. He died in 4 B.C. of kidney failure and gangrene and a bunch of other things. 4 B.C. That's why many historians date the birth of Jesus at 6 B.C. and not 0. You see, the calendar got messed up somewhere along the line. That's another talk for another day. Google it and uh, you can gain an understanding. It's interesting, as Herod's health was deteriorating and he was nearing the end, he he gave an order. He said, I hereby declare that when I die, all Jewish priests in the land shall be executed. You see, he wanted to make sure that there would be mourning when he died. So he issued that decree, which is interesting. Uh, It never got carried out, though, and no one really knows why it didn't. But before he died, Herod appointed his sons to govern. He appointed his son Archelaus to govern in uh, Judea and the Jerusalem region. And his another son, Antipas, Herod Antipas, would be the one who would rule in Galilee. And it was that Herod, Antipas, who would end up years later calling for the head of John the Baptist. He would have John the Baptist executed. And it was that Herod, Antipas, who was also involved in the sentencing and execution of your Lord and Savior Jesus. Herod the Great's tomb was discovered in 2007, so just about 10 years ago, and it was excavated about eight miles south of Jerusalem. They located it. There was a, a broken sarcophagus that they found there, but no remains. And so it's been speculated that somewhere along the line, uh, his, some of his many enemies may have come and you know, raided that and, and taken his body away and maybe even desecrated it. So that's Herod the Great. So so knowing all of that about this man, it shouldn't surprise us that he became a willing accomplice in Satan's plan to snuff out someone that he believed would be a threat to his throne, the toddler Jesus. Now, do you remember how, how that all went down? Let me refresh your memory, perhaps. Remember the wise men, the magi, those guys who came from the east? At the end of their long journey, they rolled into town and they let it be known that they were looking for a new Jewish king. And I imagine Herod got wind of that and thought, well, I'm the Jewish king. You know, if you're looking for a Jewish king, he's standing right here. But it became obvious to him that they weren't looking for him, and that just irked him to no end. Pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was disturbed in a number of ways. This got under his skin. It bothered him deeply. In all Jerusalem, it says, with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. The prophet Micah, Micah 5 2. And here's the prophecy but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. A ruler who would be a shepherd. I love that description of my savior, don't you? He's the shepherd king, I love that. But Herod didn't. To Herod, Ruler sounded like rival, competitor, a threat potentially to his position, to his lifestyle. And at that moment, Herod's paranoia kicked in. His jealous instincts went on alert. His mind started to spin and started to scheme. And what he decided to do was call for a private meeting with these wise men to try to extract some information out of them. So verse 7 of Matthew 2, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now when I was a little kid, my parents had a, a, a vinyl record. Remember those? It had a little hole in the middle. And you put it on a turntable and spin it, and you put this needle on it. And it would play sound. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? And and one of it was a, a bunch of Bible stories. And one of the stories was this story. And I can still remember to this day the voice of the narrator as he narrated Herod's voice in this verse. Go, make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. Also, (laughs) I still remember that. It makes chills go up and down my spine. Because it's true, Herod had a secret agenda, right? He had no intention of worshiping the boy Jesus. A satanically inspired plan was forming in his jealous heart. He wanted to locate the exact whereabouts of this new king and eliminate him immediately before he could grow up and gain a following. But you know what? When you read this, you can also see that Herod was devising a plan B, a fallback plan, just in case the wise men outsmarted him somehow. Because it says he asked them when the star first appeared. I believe he was calculating how old that child might be by this time. I believe he was thinking, well... If I can't pick off the one, then I'll destroy the many to make sure I get the one. I, I, I think that mass execution was on his mind if it would come to that, which sounds pretty satanic to me, doesn't it to you? I don't know if the wise men sniffed that out or not, but it didn't matter. God knew what was in Herod's heart, and God would not allow Satan to snuff out the life of our Savior. And so God came to the wise men, and in a dream, he warned them not to go back to Herod, not to report anything back to him, but to actually bypass the palace altogether and take a totally different route back home to avoid any possible contact with Herod or any of his emissaries. And you've got to know that when Herod realized that, that it just got him ticked off. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders, kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So Herod's plan B was unbelievably vicious, cruel, and brutal, heartless. If he couldn't discover the exact location of one little boy and do away with him, then he would eliminate all the little boys living in the entire region. That would take care of any threat in his mind. How brutal can a person be? I'm telling you, jealous paranoia, if you let that take over your your life, will will drive you to do unthinkable things. And by the way, there have always been deranged maniacs who will stop at nothing, even killing innocent children to achieve their twisted objectives. Objectives. I think right now in our culture, hopefully, we're becoming more and more aware that little children are fairly helpless to defend themselves against evil-minded adults who seek to use them for their own benefit or even eliminate them in the womb for the sake of convenience. I believe we need to do everything we can to protect our children and to support measures that do the same. Interestingly, the aftermath of Herod's rampage actually had been predicted centuries earlier. Matthew 2.17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, that's that region there, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel here a picture of Israel, the mothers of Israel weeping for their sons and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And it's heartbreaking the evil that people can do to each other. Matthew tells us that just prior to that order being carried out, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Remember this? Saying, look, take take Mary, take the child, uproot your family, flee to Egypt. Herod's about to massacre boys all across the land. And so Joseph did what he was accustomed to do. He obeyed the voice of the Lord, didn't he? And he took Mary and baby Jesus, or the little child Jesus, down to Egypt protecting him. We thank God for that. Just think about it. If the devil, if Satan, through Herod, had been able to wipe Jesus out when he was just a little fella, then there would have been no growing up for Jesus, Right? There would have been no living that beautiful life that that all of us admire and respect. That morally perfect life that fulfilled the, the holy law of God. If Herod had succeeded, there would have been no awesome miracles no changing water into wine, no walking on water, no healing blind people or lame or crippled people, no raising of Lazarus from the dead. There would have been no wonderful, truth filled teaching and preaching from the lips of Jesus if Herod had succeeded. There would have been no ministries of mercy to the poor and to the outcast and to the downtrodden. And most importantly, there would have been no atoning sacrifice for sin on that cross. No burial in the tomb, no resurrection from the dead, and thus no forgiveness, no eternal life offered as a gift of grace. If Herod had succeeded, if the dragon had succeeded in snuffing out the life of that little child, then you and I would still be under Satan's sway and under the condemnation of God's law. You and I would still be lost in our sins, left to face a holy God one day at the judgment bar without any defense. And so I thank God that he did not allow that to happen. I thank God that he arranged for the preservation of that little life. I praise God that Herod's plan to take him out was thwarted. I thank God for acting to protect his son and preventing the great dragon from devouring him, which he had every intention of doing. I think we should all be very grateful that Christmas happened the way that it did, the testimony of the power and the grace and the love of God. Now this is a, a sermon series on us getting Christmas right this year getting it right, in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own families, being in alignment, getting our hearts and minds and lives in alignment with the heart of God when it comes to celebrating what Christmas is all about. And so towards that end, I want you to think for a few moments about this man, Herod, and about his response, and how it revealed a heart that had gotten it all so very wrong. And I'd like to make three observations about this, if I may. So here's the first one, and I really believe this is true. I I think that Herod's issue is often our issue as well, and I'm talking about fear, fear. Isn't this true? I mean, how many people, maybe even in this room, have a fear of surrendering to Jesus, a fear of letting Jesus be king? I know I've been there at certain points in my life, maybe some of you are there right now. Herod's issue, I believe, is often our issue. We think, well, what's going to happen? I mean, if I relinquish control to Jesus, what's going to happen? How will I manage if I'm not in charge anymore of my life? Will people view me differently? Will there be people who will lose respect for me and just see me differently if I don't appear the, to be the large and in charge guy or gal anymore? If I decide to get out of the driver's seat of my life and go sit in the back and turn the steering wheel of my life over to Jesus, where is he going to take me? <laughs> I don't like not knowing where I'm going. I like feeling in control. I like feeling like I'm the one mapping out my course. I'm the one directing my future. So often when King Jesus comes to us, he finds other kings sitting in his place, sitting on his throne that's, that's rightfully his. Other rulers that we've sworn allegiance to, given our hearts to, And you know what? You can't have two kings. You can't have two masters. There will be a clash for supremacy. Mark it down. I say to you today, Jesus did not come to be one monarch among many in your life or mine. He came to be king of kings. Amen? Lord over all other lords. The pretender kings who currently reign in our hearts, are going to get upset by that. They're going to feel threatened by that, like Herod was. And they should, because Jesus is a threat to usurpers. Maybe you're accustomed to thinking about Jesus in a certain way. Maybe in your mind you say, you know, I just love thinking about Jesus As a little baby, just laying there, sleeping so peacefully, so cute and cuddly, not asking me to do anything, not making any demands on me, no threat whatsoever to my lifestyle, just a warm, cuddly little bundle of joy. Maybe that's how you've grown accustomed to thinking about Jesus. I know this sounds strange, but perhaps some of us need to get our thinking more in line with the thinking of Herod. Because at least Herod understood that little child would grow up one day and start to make king-like demands and claims. I mean, he got that right. He just responded wrongly once he realized it. Here's what I want to say about this to you today. Jesus, the king, is not a threat to you. He is not a threat to you, only to your idols, only to your false kings that perhaps you've allowed to sit on the throne of your heart. He is a threat to them. I believe Herod's reaction in this story was meant to show us how jealous other kings are to keep control of our lives, how reluctant they're going to be to yield to the one true king, when he shows up, they might even get irrational and violent like Herod did. Maybe even today, maybe even today, the, the truth about you is that you've allowed your heart and your life to be gov- governed by something else or something other than Jesus. And Now you're hearing about this man who's presenting himself as the king of kings and is coming wanting to take his rightful place as Lord of your heart and whatever is currently sitting on the throne of your heart is starting to squirm a little bit. Maybe the truth is that you've been the king of your life. It's been true of me at times, my life. Maybe it's you that's squirming a little bit. The thought of losing precious control sends chills up and down your spine and makes you a little queasy to even think about. But Jesus, here he comes. He's coming into your orbit right now, this morning, and he's saying, listen, I will be a far better king of your life than you'll ever be. I know you. I made you. I know more than you do, he would say. I know the future. I shape the future. I believe he would say, surrender to my kingship, and you will discover how good it is to live under my rule. Have you discovered that yet? Have you discovered that living under the rule and reign of King Jesus is a good thing? It is a good thing. You're going to be mastered by something. Being mastered by Jesus is a good thing. That leads me to my second observation, and that's this: Jesus is a king, but he's a good king. He's a good king. Now that first phrase is true. He is a king. Make no, make no mistake about that. And what do kings do? They rule and they reign. I think if someone would go to Jesus and 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 I know none of you ever would, but if someone went to Jesus and said, Look, Jesus, I like you and everything. I'm I'm so glad that you died on the cross for me, and I really want you as my savior. But that whole Lord thing, I'm not really into that. I would love to have you come and and be my savior, but but I want to continue to be my own king. Can I have you as Savior, but not Lord? And I I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth, but what I know about him from his word, I think Jesus would say, I don't have a split personality. I'm one person. I'm, I'm the full package. I'm one integrated person. I am who I am. He did say that. And yes, I am Savior. I did die on the cross for you, but I am also a king, and I come to reign. Or like the prophecy we saw earlier, he is a shepherd ruler. Yes, I do come to shepherd and nurture your heart. Yes, yes but I also come to reign and if you want me you get me for who I am you must take me for that not just the piece of me that suits you in the moment I'm a king he would say but know this Jesus is not a paranoid king he's not a power hungry self-serving bloodthirsty hard-hearted vicious king like Herod was that's not Jesus I'm telling you, he's the best king any person could ever have or any nation could ever have. I mean, just think about how Jesus' kingship was manifested when he grew up. Think about Jesus as an adult for a few minutes. Why would you not want to surrender your heart and life to such a mercy-showing king, to such a grace-giving king? I mean, think about how his kingship was manifested and how he treated people. Like the woman at the well. What mercy he showed to her. Like the man who was born blind. Like the crippled man laying by the pool of Bethesda that he raised up. He strengthened his limbs and and raised him up. Like the gal with the internal bleeding problem that he ministered to. Like the demon-possessed fella that he set free from his bondage and enslavement. The guy born blind. How about the sisters whose brother passed away? And Jesus walked into that situation and showed such compassion, such mercy, and such power, I've raised him from the dead. That's our king. Kind, compassionate, understanding, merciful. Why would someone not want to give their life to a king like that? Yes, it is true. He basically skewered the rich young ruler. He was straight up with Nicodemus, the religious guy, and the the crowds who rejected his claims and his message, he was pretty hard on. And he was very harsh with those self-righteous Pharisees, for sure. But that was because they had hardened their hearts against him. It was because they let their pride blind them. They couldn't see who he really was and see the truth, and they refused to let him reign in their hearts, thinking that they themselves would be better kings than him. A truly good king wouldn't ignore all that, wouldn't look the other way. He would confront that kind of arrogance. And that's what Jesus did because he's a good king. Over and over the Bible contends that Jesus is a good king, the very best king. Listen to me. His heart is for his people, not against them. He's the king who laid down his life for his subjects, for crying out loud. What, What king does that? What king does that? He's the king who did all the heavy lifting for us. Amen? And then he says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, weighted down. Come to me, I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's the Lord. That's the Savior I serve and love. He's the shepherd king as we saw in the prophecy, ruling us as his subjects while at the same time shepherding our hearts into green pastures and leading us beside still waters. Romans says he empowers his people to reign in life and ultimately to reign with him in his eternal kingdom. Look at me. Jesus Christ is not about keeping you down, keeping you down. He's not about crushing you under his heel, grinding you into powder. That's not his heart. It's not his heart. Human rulers often do that. But Jesus, King Jesus is about elevating his people to a higher plane, even about adopting us into his royal family. I love the phrase in Ephesians that talks about Jesus seating us with him in heavenly places in Christ. That's some serious elevation. That's his heart. And so I'm telling you, Jesus is a good king. And that's why my third observation is actually a challenge to you today. And it's this. Let King Jesus rule in your heart today. Let him rule. I believe that's the main way for all of us to get Christmas right this season is to to topple, to depose all the other Pretender kings who maybe we've allowed to sit on the throne of our heart to topple them and reinstall Jesus Christ as the king of our hearts. Your heart, my heart today. I don't think there's a more appropriate gift you could give Jesus for his birthday than to say, I'm yours, be my king. Be king of me, Jesus. I enthrone you as the undisputed king of my heart. I surrender Some of you get the shakes just thinking about that. I surrender my whole life to you. I give up control. I implore you, please don't be like Herod, tenaciously clinging to control at all costs. I'm telling you in the end, it'll ruin you like it did him. It'll ruin you. I ask you today, are you ready to rise up and overthrow the pretenders? Because if you do, there's great joy and freedom that awaits you. When I was 18, I prayed a prayer for the first time. And it was a simple prayer. I was looking up into the night sky. God had been churning up my heart, working in my life. He brought some people into my life who were the real deal who really loved Jesus. I mean, they really loved Jesus. I couldn't dismiss them. I couldn't write them off. I had had no category for that kind of person prior to that time. God was using others to stir me up. I remember looking up into the night sky and praying this prayer. Jesus, right now, I'm giving all that I know of me to all that I know about you. With me at the wheel of my life, I've been making a mess of things. That's the truth. I've been taking wrong turns. I've ended up in the ditch on more than one occasion. I don't want to drive anymore. I'm getting in the back seat. You take the wheel of my life. You drive from now on, Jesus. You be my king, my Lord. I'm giving, I'm surrendering all of me to all that I know of you. I certainly didn't know everything about myself at that point as an 18-year-old, and I didn't know that much about him, but I said, everything I know of me, I'm giving right now, surrendering to everything I know of you. And almost immediately, I felt a relief. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, God's got this. (laughs) He's a better driver than me. He's a better king than me. He's a better Lord of my life than I have been. I so want that for all of you. Oh, how I want you to have that. I want you to have a wonderful Christmas this Christmas season, but it begins... It begins with seeing Jesus as having grown up and becoming king and making him king of your life. Your life. So would you bow your heads with me? Because I wanted to give you the opportunity this day to pray that prayer that I prayed when I was 18. Maybe for the first time, or maybe for the hundredth time, Dear Jesus, I give all that I know of me to all that I know of you. By faith, Jesus, I can't see you, so this is all by faith. But I believe in you, I believe that you came to this earth, born in Bethlehem's manger, grew up, lived a perfect life, died in my place, raised from the grave, that you're alive today. And right now in this moment, I give all that I know of me to all that I know of you. If you feel prompted to pray that prayer, would you just do that right now? For our folks in Whitehall, I'm going to turn it over to our pastor there for a time of response. Right here in this room, I'd like to ask you to raise your hand. If you say, I prayed that prayer, Steve. I give all that I know of me to all that I know of you. Would you lift, just lift your hand and let me know you prayed that prayer? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Many, many, many of you. God bless all of you. Lord Jesus, you will be a much better ruler and king of our lives than we would ever be. Lord, I remember that when I prayed that prayer for the first time, I remember saying, take all my past, all my failures, all my sins, all my mess-ups, all my detours, I give you my past and my present and my future. Lord, I remember saying to you, here, here here's my, the, the, any gifts and talents that I have that you gave me in the first place, I give them back to you, I offer them to you now, I am yours, I belong to you. Lord, I, I would hate it if anybody within the sound of my voice thought that that they have to somehow clean up their life first before they can come to you. That they're thinking, oh, I got I to gotta do this and do that and get, this, get these bad habits out of my life and start doing this and, and then maybe I'll come to Jesus. Lord, if you would just help them to know in this moment that they can come just as they are. With all their junk. With all their sin and pride and rebellion and all of their... Their are uh, gifts and talents and good experiences, Lord. Take us as you find us. And Lord, you're a good king. We trust you to lead our lives in a way that brings us great joy and brings you great glory because we know those go together. And so thank you for those who have given their lives or re-given their lives to you this day. We worship you now, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for loving us so much. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.